News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's getting harder and harder to find that bargain at the grocery store these days. And demands on the food supply chain are intense. Everyone's looking for solutions, and it's not easy. So this week on the Current Affairs show, The New Reality, they're going to be taking a look at innovation in food production. Could this be the answer? Well, Krista Hesse is a digital broadcast journalist for The New Reality and joins us now. Hi, Krista. Hi. So thanks what for is, having me. Well, thanks for being here. This is a fascinating subject. So what is it that you looked into here? Yeah, so the one of the first topics we looked into was actually vertical farming. So imagine this. You have a warehouse space full of crops stacked in, on top of the, each other in these large metal trays, which is basically allowing farmers to grow a lot more food using a lot less space. Hmm, interesting. Is this something that we're seeing more and more of? It is. Um, you know, as climate change, you know, poses unprecedented challenges to farmers, and, you know, your listeners in BC are all too aware of this, Farmers in BC are even looking into this now, too, after the, the floods uh, in the fall, because, you know, these farms, because they're indoor farming, they're kind of impervious to climate change and natural. It's something that food producers are looking at and saying, you know, maybe this is the way forward to, you know, shield yourself from mass crop loss in the future. Okay, so is this expensive for farmers to do? Is this something that they can switch over and start doing? It's definitely expensive. I mean, I talked to the CEO of one of the largest vertical farms in the country uh, here in Guelph, Ontario, and he definitely admitted that there is a lot of cost up front. Building these facilities is not a cheap venture, nor is powering them. So they actually do require a lot of electricity because LED lights are actually replacing the sun. So you have to factor in energy prices, too. The technology is fairly new, so I think it's a lot of cost up front, but, you know, Basic, the bottom line is that they actually grow produce faster. You're kind of shielded from these outside, uh, you know, factors. And so in the long run, it's actually a pretty sustainable option that this CEO thinks anyway, that he's gambling on uh, for food production and, you know, leafy greens and fruits and vegetables all year round in Canada, which, you know, as farmers know, you can't just can't do that here. Yeah, exactly. Is there a lot of pressure, would you say, on food producers right now, Krista, to, to be innovative? Oh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, when I started researching this topic, it was just an incredible the amount of topics I could have gone with for this story. There's just so much happening in the agri-tech space right now. Food producers are really embracing technology to try to solve these big global problems. You know, we're going to have 10 billion mouths to feed by 2050. And the global food system, as we know it, is already strained. We already saw that at the grocery stores you know, empty shelves or shelves full of the kind of mushy or wrinkled produce. So these are kind of the kind of creative solutions that food producers are coming up with to deal with these supply chain challenges. And I think you'll see a lot more vertical farms in the future. Okay, so you got to actually like take a look at some of these farms and did it like, did it look like a farm? No, they look nothing like the farm, you know, they don't even really look like a greenhouse. So you walk into what kind of seems like a warehouse facility and you're immediately struck by just a blinding purple light. Um, and that's because the plants like red and blue spectrum light. So mixed together, you get this bright fuchsia colored light. 
And, you know, you walk in, there's kind of an earthy smell to it. Uh, the light is very blinding. Your eyes don't even really know what to do with it. And you just hear water because a lot of these systems use hydroponic systems. So the plants grow and get all their nutrients from the water that's supplied. And that's part of what makes these farms so efficient is they actually recycle all the water they use. So they use 95% less water um, than a traditional farm, which, as we know, you know, as the climate changes, that's going to be really important in the future. Yeah, that's going to be huge. Okay, and I also, you also took a look at, like, animal protein that is now being kind of grown in a lab, right? I keep hearing about this, but how close are we to seeing this happen? Yeah, so, I mean, the first lab-grown burger was unveiled to everyone with, you know, wild fanfare in 2013. And scientists have come a long way from that. That burger cost uh, $330,000 U.S. to make. Uh, and it's just in the last decade, uh, scientists have really improved the technology, brought costs down a lot. And so we actually visited one company in California that's doing a replacement for wild Pacific salmon. Uh, it's called Wild Type. And at a molecular level, you know, the product is the same. It is wild Pacific salmon. The difference is they're growing it in these large bioreactors, which are kind of these large tanks you see at like a brewery. Um, And I talked to a bunch of experts on this. uh, But the general feeling is, you know, we're still definitely a couple years away from seeing this on grocery store shelves, uh, mass produced. Right now, producers in the cellular agriculture aspect. So, you know, they may have a really good prototype, a really good product. Now they're trying to figure out how to mass produce that uh, in a cost-effective and sustainable way. Wow, so interesting. Well, I look forward to hearing more. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So farmers all over England are being recruited to bury something in their fields. And this is an effort to cut CO2 emissions in the battle against climate change. So what is it that they're burying? Well, it's something called biochar. It's not a new substance. It's been used like as fertilizer on a small scale, but this time they're using it. They're going big with it. They are using it on a large scale. So we want to know why. What is this all about? Joining us is Colin Snape, the Director of Engineering uh, at the Efficient Fossil Energy Technologies and the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Nottingham. Colin, thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me on the uh, program. What is biochar, first of all? I think the way to look at this, we've been taking coal out of the ground since the start of the Industrial Revolution and burning it and putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, essentially to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. We need to reverse the process. So essentially, we're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, going through photosynthesis, and the biomass that is produced, then converting that into a char, uh, which is being buried in the ground and can be locked away for long periods of time. So what kind of benefit is that by putting that in the ground? What happens? Well, I, I think the first thing is it's contributing to achieving net zero emissions. Um, I think good place to start is the uh, Canadian Net Zero Emission Accountability Act uh, 2021, where your c- Canada is currently putting 670 million tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere. Even in 20 years' time, that figure is going to be significant. So to get to net zero, you're going to have to reverse the process 
and pull CO2 out, out of the atmosphere. And converting it into bar char is just one of the ways to do it. Of course, there are other natural-based solutions, such as uh, growing more trees, uh, extending uh, peatlands, and there are other engineering approaches where CO2 as a gas is put directly into the ground through approaches uh, such as carbon capture and storage. Okay, so Colin, can you tell me about the efforts then going on where you are about getting farmers to bury this stuff? How does this work? Yeah, um, essentially what we want, want to do is demonstrate that it works and we're recruiting a number of farmers and we're going to be applying several hundred tons of uh, bar char. And if the trials are successful, uh, this will give the uh, farming community uh, confidence to uh, proceed with, with this approach uh, nationally. Our, our, our CO2 emissions are comparable to yours in Canada. So, you know, we estimate in the UK we need to pull something like 30 million tonnes of uh, carbon out of the atmosphere by 20. Uh, 50. But the key thing about bar char, it can have many uh, beneficial effects. It essentially acts as a sponge and retains moisture, retains nutrients in the soil. So you can get improved uh, crop yields. You can reduce the use of nitrogen fertilizers uh, because they, in wet conditions, uh, run off. And what happens with bar char can essentially uh, soak up a fertilizer and act as a form of uh, slow relief. Hmm. So, so what is, what is the process important. like for burying this? Like how far down does it have to go? What what kind of form is it when it gets buried? That's a good point because uh, traditional tilling, you're typically plowing the land to a depth of about uh, 20 uh, centimetres, um, which, which is fine but the direction in agriculture certainly in the UK is to move to regenerative uh, agriculture so you're not uh, tilling the land and by not tilling the land you're keeping organic matter in and reducing uh, greenhouse gases that way so we are looking at uh, surface spreading and over uh, long periods of time the bar char then gets mixed into the ground and then ho hopefully gets uh, buried. Okay, interesting. How many farmers have taken this up and how do you recruit them to do this? Um, we've got very close links with the uh, farming community, uh, for example, through the uh, National Farmers Union in, in the UK. So we've recruited some, something of the order of uh, 10 farmers and each one will be applying at least 10, 10 tons of uh, bar char uh, to a field. And essentially what we're going to do is monitor what happens with bar char and also uh, crop yields over a five to 10 year period. I feel like we're going to have to check back in with you then in a couple of years, Colin. Thank you for being yeah, with yeah, us. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so the, pro the, the project is uh, just uh, getting un underway. Um, but bar char is essentially... Uh, limited by the resource you've got for production. And you know, I, I think in Canada, there is likely to be plenty of uh, waste wood 
agricultural uh, residues, which can be used as a source. All for, right. Uh, well, you know what? I look forward to hearing more about it. Colin, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having, having me on the program. Well, Chinese jets are repeatedly buzzing a Canadian surveillance plane that is part of a United Nations mission over international waters. And officials are worried over what they see as a dangerous escalation, they say, in this situation, in aggression. Now, this is all part of an exclusive story that you'll find at globalnews.ca and on Global National. And Mercedes Stevenson has been part of that. She joins us now, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So tell me about this story. What do we know about what's going on? So what's happening is that Chinese fighter jets are very aggressively intercepting uh, Canadian intelligence aircraft, which are big kind of lumbering aircraft with propellers. So this is not another fighter jet. And they're deployed, um, and actually they're, they're done this deployment now, but they were deployed on something called Operation Neon. And that is uh, a Japan-based United Nations operation that exists to enforce the sanctions against North Korea so that they can't continue to develop weapons of mass destruction. So it looks for ships that might be carrying things like fuel or arms to North Korea over the Pacific Ocean. And what was happening is the Canadian planes were conducting their regular patrols there. They're planes that are able to look down, see what's in the water, look at those kinds of vessels uh, and determine whether or not they might be uh, suspicious. And they were having the Chinese fighter jets come up to them at very high rates of speed and approach uh, as close as 100 to 20 feet off the wing of the plane. Whoa. Now, if you've ever been on a plane that has intersected even like a kilometer from another plane, you'll feel that turbulence from the jet stream. So the turbulence that this creates is incredibly rough uh, and, and the crews are bounced all over the place. Beyond that, they're worried about the possibility of a mid-air collision and have had to actually take evasive action a couple of times to avoid having a mid-air collision with one of these Chinese jets. Uh, and th- this has happened, I'm told, uh, there have been 60 intercepts since Christmas. Um, almost half of those have been what the Air Force calls unsafe and unprofessional. So these kinds of very close buzzing of the jets. And as the pilots are going by, they are flashing the middle finger to the Canadian pilots. Um, so it's a very clear message that's being sent. And this is not a case of, you know, it happened once or twice. Maybe it's a pilot who's freelancing. Right. Um, this seems to be a case of Beijing has made a decision to do this. And Canada has actually sent um, three demarches, which is an official diplomatic reprimand to the Canadian, pardon me, to the Chinese government uh, saying, hey, this is unsafe. This is not how this is supposed to be done. Stop it. Um, and it, it, it was not stopping. Okay, so then what is the next step then? Has they, have officials indicated what they're going to do? Well, I mean, what do you do, right? It's it's now out in the public, so it'll be interesting to see mm-hmm. uh, what Beijing does with that. Do they become more aggressive as a result of that? Um, or do they back down because they've now been called out for what's happening? Um, and, and that sort of remains to be seen. Usually China doesn't back off. Um, the Canadians are finished uh, with that part of the mission. We'll see what happens when they pick back up again. We're, we're not flying planes through there right now. But it was happening uh, regularly. And we are still on that mission. So it could certainly start to happen again. But, but just to kind of give your listeners context too, this happens with the Russians where there's intercepts quite regularly over the Canadian North. Um, and it's, it's very controlled. The pilots see each other. They kind of, you know, have this professional relationship where they, you know, see the other aircraft, they will acknowledge that um, it is not normal 
even with an adversarial country, to be getting this close and taking these kinds of risks. Um, and China did do this before, about 20 years ago. And in that incident, um, there was a Chinese pilot that was buzzing an American um, intelligence aircraft regularly, holding up his email address written on a piece of cardboard. And eventually he crashed into that American plane and the pilot was killed. The Americans managed to make an emergency landing and their crew survived. Uh, But it gives you a sense of this is very, very dangerous because they're so close. It takes one very minor error and you have two planes that are colliding over the ocean. Yeah, I know you spoke to several experts about this, too, who kind of watch Chinese-Canadian relations or kind of what China is doing on the world stage. And what do they say about this? They're saying that this is an escalation of aggression. Um, and the Chinese did buzz a Canadian warship that was in the South China Sea a couple of years ago, but it was twice. This is happening um, consistently on this mission, very, very regularly when these flights go up, according to my sources. Um, and, and that is what's alarming, is that it seems to be a trend in becoming more aggressive. The Prime Minister said yesterday that they are trying to take steps to make sure this is not an escalation. Um, I don't know what those steps are when you've told the Chinese government to stop. Um, this is international airspace. The Canadians are not flying over China. Uh, they are not somewhere that they're not supposed to be. So it, it's sort of goes with this trend of increasingly aggressive foreign policy that we have seen um, from the Chinese in recent years and uh, sort of this expansionism of what they believe to be their territory, their airspace, whether it's the South China Sea, and this is, by the way, not over the South China Sea where this is happening, uh, or now increasingly sort of pushing out into international airspace and escalating this and sending a very clear and a very aggressive message. All right. Interesting stuff. I look forward to hearing more. Thanks, Mercedes. Thanks, I think a lot of people are kind of looking for ways to incorporate different things into their lifestyle, particularly plant-based things. Maybe it's a little bit of your diet. You would like to have a little bit of that go plant-based. Well, there's something that maybe you should be checking out this weekend. It's the Planted Expo Vancouver. It's on Saturday and Sunday. It's happening at the Vancouver Convention Centre. We're going to learn more about it right now with the help of Stephen Merkovich, who's the co-owner and chief relational officer at Planted. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Simi. Well, this sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Tell me, what, what kind of products will you have there? What, what can people learn if they come down to Planted? They can be exposed to the amazing businesses that are right here, local to Vancouver, also across Canada and internationally. We have over 200 brands featured at the event. So it's uh, really a cornucopia of plant-based products, lifestyle products, um, some of the very best artisanal kinds of things that you could imagine eating. They're scrumptious. There's, there's no compromise anymore. There's just so many incredible ways to incorporate plant-based products into your life. And so what has happened, do you think, to make all of a sudden all, as you said, a cornucopia of these products uh, available? Is there, people are just looking for more choices? You know, there's been a convergence in, um, where people are coming into this whole idea of living a more sustainable life a healthier life. Um, and so, you know, whether it's the climate crisis that people are thinking about sort of all the time, or it's, um, am I still online? Sorry. I'm, yeah, no, you're still with yeah, us. Okay, yeah. Tell us about sorry, the different. My, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, there are people that are struggling with their health and people that are just overall looking for ways to make less of an impact on this planet. And so, you know, all those three things kind of come together um, and the agricultural crises that we face and uh, the innovative sort of entrepreneurial minds are saying there's a way forward. There's a way for us to 
to feed this world sustainably um, and healthfully and look after our planet and the animals we share it with. And so it's really exciting to see how people come into this. Uh, you know, so many women-led businesses. It's incredible. I interact with a, a large portion of these businesses as we plan this event annually in Vancouver, and uh, we're expanding into Toronto. And, you know, I have to say, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed with the level of care and compassion that so many of these women give towards their products and uh, bringing them into the world. What kind of products are we talking about here? Like, what is it that people are demanding? Yeah, so, you know, faux-based uh, alternative proteins and meats um, and uh, dairy products, alternative milk beverages, yogurt beverages, cheese beverages, uh, cheese products. Um, there are just so many of the kind of classic things that you have grown up eating that, you know, you wonder, uh, you know, what would that be like if I experienced it as a, a vegan or a plant-based product? And so you'll see a lot of those. And, and some of the very best in the world are right here. Um, you know, we have home court advantage here in Vancouver. That's that's the beautiful part of it is that some of the very best products from around the world originate right here. And is that because do you think of local demand or is it just kind of like some people started doing it here? So other people started doing it here. Oh, listen, um, the sales numbers for the way that groceries is growing in, in terms of the plant-based is, um, you know, it's just in black and white. Like the, the numbers don't lie. Uh, you know, you see it everywhere from your regular grocery stores. If you walk into a, um, you know, your traditional uh, grocery retailer now, they are uh, also creating their own products as well. And so uh, what you find is that, uh, that people are incorporating this to the best of their ability whenever they can, even if they don't necessarily identify as either fully plant-based or vegan, they are incorporating these products as much as they can because they, they know the overall benefit. Okay, so if people want to come down there, then can they try some of these new products? Yeah, yeah. Our events have been described as a sampling frenzy. Um, you <laughs> That's know, good. Listen, we like the, that. The, yes, you will get a chance to eat from food trucks, of course, but uh, all of the vendors are prepped and ready to share about their products, to let you try them, to let you buy them. Um, we are a direct kind of consumer show. And so, you know, you can come ready. There are bags and you'll walk away with so many incredible products. Um, and you bring your whole family down and you can put it into the, into the mouths and hands of your six, seven, eight year olds and see if they like it. And you can watch their eyes and their eyes light up like, mom, dad, I'll eat this. This is awesome. Um, so yeah, it's a really uh, fun family friendly event. We've got, uh, uh, legendary speakers coming in, uh, Ali Tabrizi, who made the film Seaspiracy, which was a hit on Netflix during the pandemic. Um, you know, we've got jo Joey Haywood, which is a, a legendary basketball player who went vegan about three years ago, and he's setting up a whole half court of basketball and will be playing one-on-one -on -one against kids and adults and everybody that wants to be there. It's just like an interactive event where you can be immersed in the best of the plant-based world. Well, listen, if there's samples, then Stephen, I am there. So listen, thank you so much for telling us all about it this morning. Yeah, thank you so much, Stephen.